Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. We would like to acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. Sovereignty was never ceded. We'd also like to pay our respect to the elders, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be listening to this live-to-air broadcast. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. We're going to talk to Jessica Morrison, who's the Executive Officer of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, about uh, the recent Trump's recent um, decision to move the US Embassy to Jerusalem. Jessica Morrison, thanks for joining us. No worries. Good morning, everyone. So with the recent announcement of Donald Trump wanting to use the US, move the US Embassy to Jerusalem, obviously Palestine has come back into the news and it's something that people were kind of talking about and there's been some quite serious flow-on effects already from that announcement. What is the kind of impact that um, you've seen just from your work? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess on the ground, on a really practical level, it's cost four Palestinians their lives. Um, two, um, Israel shot Palestinians over the border into Gaza and two from airstrikes. Um, Palestinian health officials are saying at least 1,100 people have been arrested by tear gas and rubber bullets, live fire and that sort of stuff um, since the decision was made. Um, And many, many have been arrested and they're always really difficult figures to get. So for Palestinians on the ground, um, Israel certainly responded to protests, many of which are just raising the Palestinian flag in East Jerusalem with incredible violence, as a military occupation does. What what do you see as the kind of, I guess, the reason behind Trump wanting to ramp up, I guess, this kind of aggression and change the the narrative of what's happening with the US and, and Israel again? Yeah, look, there's lots of pieces of analysis trying to guess where Trump's coming from. I guess what we know is there's huge pressure from Trump um, domestically um, for him to be pro-Israel. And there's a number of lobbies that are encouraging him to do that. Over the weekend, there was a, um, a Texan fundamentalist Christian who was announcing why this was a great step towards Armageddon. Um, so the fundamentalist Christians in the US who have a lot of power um, and are much bigger than they are here in Australia certainly puts pressure on, on Trump to be seen as pro-Israel. Um, and the other thing is that Trump, you know, seen as a businessman, has said he wants the ultimate deal in Israel-Palestine, and certainly his negotiating style is to screw one side um, to try and break the deal. So perhaps, you know, it's also as basic as an ego legacy issue as well. And do you think this is going to have, I guess, longer-term implications for Trump? I mean, it's not he's certainly not the first most recent or, or any kind of US president to be pro-Israel, but do you see this going to have, I guess, longer-term impacts for his term to be re-elected and, I guess, the legacy of him long-term? Well, 
last night I was in an event where people were saying that they think this decision will mark the start of the end of the Trump era. And, you know, I hope they're right that this is the start of the demise of Trump. But unfortunately, I think what it's meant is that he will be shoring up domestic support. Um, This will be a really popular move um, with his sort of constituents, the right wing in the United States and the right wing in Israel. But they're the only ones who are cheering for this decision. Um, The whole world is in in, um, uproar about it. There was a special UN Security Council meeting on the weekend. Um, so it's, globally, it is an incredibly unpopular decision, um, but domestically, it may work for him. And what can people do in Australia, in Melbourne, to support Palestinian people and to oppose the decision of Trump? Yeah, so there's solidarity rallies happening all around Australia. Um, in Melbourne, there's one on Wednesday night. Um, at the State Library, there's decisions on our website. And I think it's really important for people to know that this is, um, is, this is a huge decision that Trump's made. I mean, Israel invaded um, the West Bank and East Jerusalem and military occupied them in 50 years ago. And for 50 years, the whole world has said that this is an illegal occupation and we will not recognise your occupation as legitimate in East Jerusalem. And so with one stroke of a pen, Trump is saying all that stuff's back up in the air and they actually don't care. So it's a huge green light for Israel to do whatever they like and then think they'll get international legitimacy a few years later. So it's a huge decision. Um, And, yeah, it would be wonderful for Palestinians to feel solidarity here. There's been great rallies all around the world and people showing solidarity from the diplomats all the way to the streets. It would be great to see the same here in Australia. Yeah, we've already seen some of the protests and actions that have happened around the world. And like you mentioned at the start, there's already been some really serious consequences for Palestinian people. And I guess, you know, I think that every few years there's another action either by Israel itself or the US to kind of further push Palestinian people back. And I guess this is another example of that kind of happening. And, you know, it happens in different sort of ways each time they're trying to force the issue in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. But every day Palestinians are experiencing violence, of course. They live under a violent military occupation and this year unfortunately showed past the 50th anniversary of the Israeli military occupation of the West Bank in Gaza. So Palestinian reality is that whatever's happening in the border politics, they are having this horrendous experience of military occupation. So something clearly needs to change, but yes, yeah, certainly not in this direction. Yeah, I want. Could you speak a little bit more about um, the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network and the kind of things that the group does in Australia? Yeah, certainly. So this year um, we've been doing a whole lot of stuff to try and shift Australian politics. Um, Australia's been the most one-eyed Israel supporter um, almost in the world. Um, We've gone neck and neck with the US a lot. So APAN is trying a whole lot of things to move that position. And so it was wonderful earlier this year when um, um, Netanyahu came to Australia and Turnbull welcomed him with open arms. Uh, that there were national protests about that and we coordinated a statement of prominent Australians uh, saying why Trump shouldn't be given um, a welcome mat but instead of a a red card. So we try and support 
everything that's in there, so grassroots mobilisations, uh, working with the media, direct lobbying into government. Uh, we were really excited to host um, an Israeli speaker, Gideon Levy, uh, in the last few weeks, and you can check out on our Facebook what he had to say about what needs to happen next. Um, and so we do all these things to try and build the movement uh, that will push politics to have a more balanced position. You mentioned it's about Australia's hand-in-hand operation with Australia uh, with American militarism, and you see like that. I guess has become even more not just a defensive kind of mechanism, but you know very proactive. And we've seen over the years Australian politicians speak out. Uh, in support of Israel and, I guess, a continuation of American foreign policy. And that, I guess, is not looking like changing anytime soon, but the work of like yourself and APAN is trying to shift that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got to hope that under certainly under a Trump administration that's so extreme, Australia might have a more nuanced position than just following the US wherever it goes. And gratefully, the Australian government hasn't supported this decision by Trump. Um, While the rest of the world has been openly condemning it, we've just not supported it. Um, But it's good to see that at least we did that, um, and the foreign minister has confirmed that we won't be moving our embassy. Um, So we hope that this might, um, that the Trump regime is going to be extreme enough that the Australian government will be more independent. Um, But we've taken huge shifts, I think, in the culture of Australian politics. Um, Previously, it was just a done thing to go on these um, junket trips to Israel, all expenses paid, business class, you know, as junkets are. Now, um, in the Labor Party, it's seen as the norm that if you're going to go on these trips, you should spend equivalent time in Palestine. So there's a real shift in the culture, and I think we've seen, starting to see quite a shift in the... Labor Party thinking around Israel-Palestine and there's quite a, a live debate within in that party who are wanting, lots of people who are wanting to see more nuanced views. Uh, this time last year we had 50 politicians who stood up about the issue of the treatment of Palestinian children in Israeli military detention. Um, so that's a huge number of politicians that are willing to stand up for Palestine. I think we're seeing a big shift. Well, yeah, let's hope so. And I really hope our listeners and and everyone's going to be following the news intently about what the impact is, I guess, the broader questions for the world, but most importantly for Palestinian people and how it's going to affect those people that are living under this occupation. Absolutely. After 50 years of occupation and 100 years of being promised their own state, Palestinians can't keep suffering indefinitely. And certainly we need the movement to grow bigger and louder and stronger if we're going to be able to overthrow this occupation. Well, thanks a lot for joining us, Jess. Just before you go, I wonder if you could just uh, repeat the details of the action that is coming up on Wednesday. Yeah, Wednesday night, State Library at 6 o'clock. There'll be a solidarity rally um, called um, in coalition the local Palestinian group and um, the campaign against Israeli apartheid have called that for Wednesday night at 6. Um, but check out atan.org.au for events all around Australia and other events as they come up. Thanks a lot, Jess. Beautiful. Thanks, Dean. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots.
3CR Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. I live in here. Just only in one hour we hear about here. We didn't know about and we're so upset really when we hear about that Nancy group coming here and against the Muslim. And we don't know why they choose in Philemon really. That was audio from uh, last Monday uh, and a video recorded by Vice News uh, where they were down in Flemington near um, the Melbourne. Oh gosh, I've forgotten the name of the um the name of the venue, but it was a uh, from a report by Vice Media on the protests surrounding far right propagandist Milo Yiannopoulos on his visit to Melbourne last Monday. The campaign against racism and fascism, or CAF, was one of the groups which organised a protest Yiannopoulos visit, and were joined by Debbie Brennan, a representative of CAF. Debbie, welcome to Melbourne uh, Monday Breakfast. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Now, to begin with, Debbie, um, just for those of us who weren't there on Monday, could you set the scene for us? Who turned up to the streets outside Yiannopoulos' event and how many people were there? What was it like? Mm, okay. Well, first of all, um, because protest was being organized, the Yiannopoulos um, organizers of that event um, had to keep their venue secret. Um, we also mm. understand that previous um, locations, previous venues, had cancelled. So where we ended up in Flemington um, was like the second or third venue that they tried. Um, we learned an hour before where the venue would actually be. So given all of that, um, it was quite remarkable that about maybe 500 showed up to protest the Milo Yiannopoulos event. Um, so there was quite a crowd of us there. There were also um, neo-Nazi grouplets with their leaders who were there. Um, this is something about Milo Yiannopoulos who has um, very close Nazi connections, and so his event attracted these Nazi groups. So they were there. And then, of course, hundreds and hundreds of police who um, were there in all of their gear, um, including most prominently their riot gear of helmet and shields. So it was a very intense time. Um, That's right. And significantly, this was just outside of, I believe it's Debney's Park, or it's one of the, the high-rise public housing yes. units um, down in, in Flemington's um, Kensington and- area. Exactly, and this is what added to the intensity because that venue is on Racecourse Road directly across the street Mm. from the Flemington Housing Commission flats. And, of course, their residents are, you know, refugees, migrants, asylum seekers, and um, long-time targets of um, fascists but also the Victoria Police. That's right. And so as a result, um, sort of 
for want of choice, you saw quite a large um, impromptu turnout from the public, from the public housing um, residents. Yes. Um, what uh, were you were you able to make contact with any of the people coming down from the flats? I, I understand there was a, a sort of a police barricade between um, the organised protest of Milo Yiannopoulos and the fire activists who had direct access to the um, who in turn had direct access to the the residents from that building and was hurling racist abuse at them and um, sort of uh, Islamophobic chanting. And um, was was anyone from CAF able to make contact with the people from the from the towers? Oh yes, absolutely. So what what you just described is absolutely right. Um, initially, um, we were outside the venue. Um, there were police and fascists in the street, in Racecourse Road, and then um, residents came down who were standing on the opposite side of Racecourse Road. Now, the residents came down to um, uh, demonstrate against the fascists and the police being there, but also in solidarity with us who were protesting Milo. So what initially happened was that there was our side against Milo, there were the residents on the opposite side of the road, separated by all these police and these fascists, but we were in solidarity with each other. Mm. But what eventually happened was that, um, predictably, the fascists who were being given free reign by the police um, started abusing and threatening the residents. The police themselves were threatening the residents. So what um, our side, the CARF side, did was go to the side. We joined the residents. And so we were then there with the residents, side by side, um, pretty much defending each other against fascists and police. And again, I can't overestimate what it would have meant to the residents who for decades have been targets of police, racial profiling, and so on, for them to have this scene of police and fascists just practically outside their doors. That's right. And um, there have been um, denials by the Victorian police that they ever entered the the grounds of Mm. the public housing flats, but there's quite a lot of compelling video out, um, which you can look up on the internet, but I'll, um, I'll put some links up to it on our website, 3cr.org.au slash Monday hyphen breakfast. Um, but there's video of police entering um, public housing, the grounds of public housing and using yes. pepper spray on a resident and um, sort of, I, I didn't quite see clearly, but it looks a lot like they enter the, the, the stairwells, but it's very troubling um, that yes. basically the residents had no escape. Now, there, um, I, I want to move on to a, a little bit of criticism that has come from certain groups um, um, associated with the public housing of um, protesters of the Milo Yiannopoulos um, organisation, um, Milo, um, sorry, the people who came to protest Milo Yiannopoulos, that is to say. Um, there was a, a statement put out by RISE, refugee survivors and ex-detainees, and it was a member and a resident of the Flemington Flats who... Um, seem to accuse groups like CAF of, um, of evaporating at the end of the evening when, um, when police started to storm the public housing units. Um, can you give us a bit of context for these remarks? 
What um, what I understand, our marshals were were um, there throughout, mm. and um, what happened is that the we were there till well into the night, till about ten thirty. Mm. Um, there were naturally there were different opinions among the residents whether um, protesters should be remaining there or should leave. That's right, yeah. Um, totally, totally expected given, you know, your targets for decades of the police. And so um, there was a lot of conversation between marshals and the residents. And so there was, it was, it was a very... Um, as one would imagine, a very tricky situation, mm. something nobody expected because, again, we didn't know we were even going to be there till an hour before. Yeah, that's true. And um, so it was a matter of really having those close um, conversations with residents who had differing ideas of what should happen next. What happened is that the police waited for the protesters to leave so mm. it's not that protesters left when police went in no way would mm. anybody have mm. left um but what the police did was they waited for their time yeah okay yeah and so yeah. um i think this what this is telling all of us is, is a couple of things number one that um this is the state of affairs that we have to expect this to happen, and that that connection between um, anti-fascist, um, you know, uh, activists and communities that are directly in line of fascist targeting, there has to be that ongoing and very close, you know, relationship. Um, continuing to be built. It has been built over time. It's a work in progress. The other point is that um, the our movement, our anti-fascist movement, really needs to keep growing. And this is where I hope, you know, listeners um, are, you know, hearing this because we need to grow. If we have thousands... on that on that note, how can people find more about CAF if they wanted to yeah. look you folks up on the internet, for example? Um, do do you have uh, some links that we could perhaps spruik on the on the show? Uh, right absolutely. Um, CAF has a Facebook page, so mm. all you need to do is go to the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism Facebook page, which is very active and very informative. Mm -hmm. um, we also have organizing meetings on the second and fourth Tuesday of the month. And so, but all of that would be put up on the Facebook page because we do need thousands. Mm -hmm. If we had thousands, we could have, you know, we could have, if the residents wanted us there we could have been there all night you know and um so it's really a matter of building that movement and building those connections within the movements 
Okay, well, uh, Debbie Brennan, thank you so much for joining us on Monday Breakfast. Debbie Brennan is a representative of the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, and we were just talking about uh, the protest of Milo Yiannopoulos' speaking tour of Melbourne. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us on Monday Breakfast. And thank you very much. 500 men sacked for refusing to ever cross a line. Union busters are back on the docks, this time a company called ICTSI. A worker has been sacked for standing up to the bosses against bullying and harassment. A community assembly has come together to support the dock workers and have started a 24-hour protest. We are holding the line, but we need your help. Get down to 78 Web Dock Drive, Port Melbourne, and join the community assembly at any time of the day or night. For more information and details, call Workers Solidarity on 0401 516 967. One in seven Australians living with a disability has experienced disability-based discrimination, and this has significant negative effects on health outcomes. These and more are the findings of the new pub- report published by the, in the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Public Health titled Disability-Based Discrimination in Health, Findings from an Australian-Based Population Study. This report was co-authored by the Director of the Centre of Research Excellence in Disability and Health, Professor Anne Kavanagh, who we have on the phone right now. Welcome to Monday Breakfast. Hello, Will. Hello and good morning. Thank you for joining us. Um, So first of all, can you give us an idea of the scope of the study and who was involved? Okay, well, um, this analysis was based on the ABS's Survey of Disability Ageing Carers, which is actually a sample of 70,000 Australians um, with and without disabilities. But this particular analysis related to um, what we call working age Australians, age 25 to 64 years of age. So it was about um, uh, 6,000 Australians were involved in in this a particular analysis. These are the people, 25 to 64, who'd reported that they had a disability in the survey. So that's extremely wide-ranging. Um, and so uh, for the purposes of the report, and just so we understand, what forms, does, uh, what forms do disability-based discrimination take um, for the purposes of the report? Yeah, so what, what, there's a very general question that's asked is, do, have you experienced um, unfair treatment or discrimination as on part the basis of, the survey. of yeah, as yeah. part of the survey. Mm. Um, sorry, uh, with disability-based discrimination or unfair treatment in the last twelve months. Um, so that was the that was the question we analysed. There's also a series of other questions that get asked, which are, you know, where did you experience this discrimination from an employer, service provider. Um, those kinds of things. And there's another question that's asked about whether people don't go places because of their disability. Um, so those three questions, those sort of sets of questions have been used to look at um, discrimination. In this particular survey, we concentrated on that first question um, and basically found that about one in seven Australians were reporting that they had experienced discrimination in the last 12 months. Um, but we believe that's that's quite an underreport. Um, yeah, um, you, you uh, in in the media release for this report, you you made a, a comment about how it would be an underreported number. Why would that be? Well, I think um, sometimes acts of discrimination are quite small acts of discrimination. Um, you know, uh, minor comments, 
or um, those kinds of things that people mightn't recognise um, as actually unfair treatment or happening because of their discrimination, particularly if they haven't really thought about some of those things before. So on the whole, this kind of discrimination tends to be underreported. It can be, it be, can be overreported if people are oversensitised, I guess, but it's more likely to be underreported. Um, so we believe it's um, much more widespread than this. When you talk to people with disabilities themselves, they can recount countless um, experiences of discrimination in their day-to-day lives, uh, ordinary day-to-day lives. Mm. So, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, the, um, and the rates of discrimination experienced, just in, um, in, in general terms, uh, seemed to correlate quite strongly with the intent, of not, uh, the severity of one's um, yeah. disability. Is yeah. that right? Yes, that's right. So mm. if people had more trouble with um, what we call kind of activities of daily living, like um, dressing themselves or, or mobility problems or communication, and they and they were at the more severe end, mm. um, they they had a about a one in five risk of of uh, reporting discrimination, and also. Um, we found um, that people with both uh, psychological or intellectual impairments, about one of four, four of them were uh, reporting discrimination, which was lower than those who had physical disabilities, for example. So uh, particular groups are more vulnerable. Um, I guess the other big issue, which you might have been going to ask me about, mm. but is that, um, that the groups, um, that were particularly affected were also those that were more disadvantaged, so the unemployed, for example. Mm, yeah. Um, so it, yeah, it's um, it's quite a sort of devastating but entirely predictable trend that the, those who are most vulnerable are receive sent, yeah. tend to be the butt of most of the, the the larger proportion rather of the discrimination based on their disability. There are other uh, social and demographic factors that seem to impact upon someone's. Uh, experience or likelihood of having experienced uh, disability-based discrimination. discrimination. Um, what yeah. else uh, were those? What uh, else? Yeah. yeah. Oh, so the unemployment, as I said, about one in three of those who are unemployed wow. experience okay. discrimination versus about uh, 9% of those who, who were in, employed and in full-time employment. Again, people who um, were in lower status occupations had higher rates than people who were professionals or, or managers. And it, and um, and also there was some evidence that um, people with lower incomes were also um, more likely to report discrimination. So I guess the thing is that um, it's often we find that um, it is the most vulnerable amongst the most vulnerable that are actually experiencing higher levels of discrimination. Yeah, mm. so, I mean, another word we use for this in the sector is what we call ableism. Uh, a bit like, um, you know, we might say sexism or um, racism, so we call mm. this ableism. Yeah, yeah, that's another way of talking about disability-based discrimination. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so in the report, you mentioned that other studies have shown a strong link between discrimination and poor health outcomes, and this is borne out by, by the work in, in your report. Um, so that seems to reframe uh, the issue of dis- disability-based discrimination um, as well as being a moral issue, also being a public health issue. And um, while we can't necessarily rely on governments to act morally, um, if you, you bring to them data in terms of um, public health, health that should affect their policy, do you, do you, do you see that, um, uh, that there's awareness of this in current government policy in terms of public health? 
Uh, no, no. Mostly we talk about discrimination and disability in terms of its impacts on whether people can get jobs or mm. housing and so forth, yeah. which is incredibly important and also very important for people's health. Um, but we rarely think about um, disability discrimination in terms of its health effects. We do talk about it in terms of racism, but mm. not so much in relation to ableism or disability-based discrimination. And we show uh, elevated risk of um, uh, of psychological distress associated with experiencing um, discrimination. So clearly has um, it clearly has health consequences um, that we should be should be um, taking become more aware of and, and and provide further impetus for us to try and get on top of this problem. Yes, and in terms of the um, the impact of disability based discrimination on one's um, reported health and um, the sort of negative impact on health outcomes, how did we see that playing out? Like, what what forms does that take in terms of poor health? Yeah, so in this study, all we looked at was people, we were relying on what was collected in the survey, was mm. how um, people self-rated health and psychological distress, mm. um, which were both um, worse in this study. But um, we, we know from other work that discrimination actually is associated with quite a range of health outcomes, like diabetes outcomes, high levels of stress hormones that then impact on diabetes and heart disease, whole range, uh, blood pressure, as well as um, what we might might expect mental health outcomes. So it has, there's no reason why we wouldn't expect that to happen in this group too, it's just we can't actually measure it. So really the implications of experiencing discrimination on health are quite profound. Mm. So there's certainly more work to be done in this field. In fact, in the report itself, you you note that there hasn't been a, a report or, or a study like this before, um, which is quite troubling because it seems like quite a, a very valuable um, sort of set of information that people would need if they were going to set um, policy around employment or policy around um, disability services or anti-discrimination. Um, why is it, do you think, that this is such an understudied field? Well, really, we haven't had the data. Um, so mm. this, this question was only included in the survey for the first time in 2015, although we've been running the Survey of Disability, Ageing and Carers since um, the mid to late 90s. But we've never collected direct information on discrimination. And this is the biggest sample of people with disabilities that we um, have in Australia. It's quite labour-intensive to collect such a broad range of information from people who have disabilities, and it is the ABS that has the capacity to do that. But mm. it was the first time that this um, this was included in the survey. So we haven't been able to, to ask this question before. I, I presume that new surveys will ask the same will ask the same kinds of questions. It would be great if they could ask even a little bit more about discrimination so we had a, a bit more capacity to to kind of drill down a little bit on, on this question. Um, but it is uh, it is telling that we haven't collected this kind of information before from people with disabilities. Uh, Professor Kavanagh, it's James here. I just had a question, like, as you just spoke then about this being the first time sort of gathered the information in this kind of way. Were the participants sort of aware of that and, and how what kind of impact did that have on them? Well, I, I, as I said before, the Australian Bureau of Statistics did actually collect the survey. Um, 
is the question with the participants aware that this was the first time it was asked? Is that the question that you're asking? Yeah, I just I guess I wondered the impact it had on them to kind of see the collecting the data and yeah, whether they whether I, they were aware or not. But I guess just how much it sort of impacted yeah. on them. I'd, I'd like to know the answer to that question, but I don't because I wasn't involved with the collection of data for this survey. Basically, what happens with these ABS surveys is researchers like us, after the data is collected, can use it. Um, with a lot of other surveys uh, in, similar to this, like the General Social Survey, even the census, researchers can use the information after it's been collected. But we were part of the data collection, so I actually don't know. It is a good question, though, because sometimes people can feel perhaps um, a little distressed by being asked some of these questions, and it's important that um, there are ways uh, to help support people if these kind of questions do cause personal distress. Wonderful. Um, so just to round this out, uh, it would be good to hear um, what response your re- report has received. Have you heard back from other people in um, in, a, in a academia around this or in, in services? Uh, no, well, um, I'm a big social media person, so I hear a little bit through social media yeah. and Twitter. Mm. Um, and we've also um, published something in Crokey, which is an online... Um, uh, do you know Crokey? It's a um, mm, croaky, online. Yes, it's a it's a croaky, very croaky. Croaky. Oh, big pardon. <laughs> croaky is the um, health version of Crikey, if you uh. like, but it's a free online. It, um, it used to be associated with Crikey, but um, it's just about public health. Um, it's a, it's a really good um, online media outlet, um, which we published on disability and discrimination. There was another article um, on. The, the same day about um, International Day of People with Disabilities and how much, how little really comes of those kinds of events. Um, so there's, it's a good place to read any kind of stuff on um, public health. I don't run it, so I'm not trying to plug it. No, no, but we'll, we'll <laughs> post the link anyway because it uh, definitely sounds yeah. like a valuable resource for the public, as is your report, yeah. which is um, not behind a paywall, so it's open to the public to read as well. Um, and yes, it's definitely very uh, very approachable. So thank you for, for, for posting your work in, in, in the comments. Um, we've been speaking yeah. to the Director of the Centre of Research Excellence in Disability and Health, Professor Anne Kavanagh. Professor Kavanagh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. This week we return to Duncan and his conversation with Mark O'Brien from the Tenants' Union of Victoria. Stay tuned to find out what the union is all about and how it can help you. Take it away, Duncan. Hello, my name is Duncan Graham and this is episode 15 of Over the Wall. Today, we resume our discussion with Mark O'Brien, CEO of the Tenants' Union of Victoria. Last week, we quizzed Mark about the likely shape of the Andrew government's projected reforms of Victorian tenancy law and also discuss problems around tenant blacklists. Today, we'll be talking to Mark about cutbacks to the Tenants Union's budget, how best to contact them, online resources and the top five reasons tenants contact them. We'll also be going into how to deal with repairs and rent increases.
Earlier this year, the Tenants Union of Victoria made the decision, after state government funding cuts, to shut down its face-to-face advice service in Johnston Street, Fitzroy. Mark O'Brien from the Tenants Union explained the effect this has had. We were helping more than a couple of thousand people a year through our face-to-face contact. And what we're mostly concerned about is those people won't have any alternative to that. Now, hopefully some of the other services that have been funded by government will step up, but we don't think they'll be able to do things as efficiently and as well as we were doing them. So we are concerned that people will simply miss out on the advice that we were providing. We've been providing that service pretty much constantly since 1975 or thereabouts. It was very early on in the piece that a drop-in service was done by us. It was originally, I think, auspiced by the Brotherhood or somebody like that. And then we had it in Johnson Street for a long time. I was around here in Smith Street for a little while and then back in Johnson Street. So it was a decision that was very hard for us to make. When we lost this funding, we simply didn't have enough resources to maintain the drop-in service. So there's no doubt that it's had an effect, but our biggest concern is that the people who were coming to see us will be able to get service somewhere else. Tell me if I'm wrong, but some of the consultants you employ are considerably talented in law and therefore not cheap. That's right. So we've got about a dozen lawyers and they don't get paid a commercial wage to come and work for us and they mostly do it because they're passionate about the issue and about the clients. It doesn't cost the government a fortune to run our service. It's actually a sort of oily rag job, but the lawyers are very good at what they do. And we do try to help as many people as we can who can benefit from our assistance. So we'd love to help more, but we just don't have the resources. Unfortunately, what that means is you do have to ration things. We have to have an eye all the time to what's the value that we can extract in this case. Is it really important for the person? Is there something else that we can get out of it as an organisation that will help tenants more broadly? The Tenants Union can now exclusively be contacted online or by phone. Next, Mark explained the best ways to get in contact and even the best times and what kind of a wait should be expected. It's much better to call than email. Because of demand, all of our services were restricted. We have a little queue for the phone service, but our abandoned call rate is still something like 35-40%. So that means four people out of ten don't get through. That's harsh. We try to keep our phone calls as efficient as we can, balancing that with we don't want to rush people and not give proper advice. So, But we try to keep them efficient and get through as many as we can. With email, we've got capacity to do eight emails a day. So there's a gateway, and after the eight emails, the gateway closes. So um, if you're the ninth person, it's not going to do you much good. On the phones, you're probably going to wait on average about half an hour to get through. There are quieter times of the day, not really much quieter, but there are slightly quieter times of the day where you can call. And we do find it's very peaky. So, you know, there's a lot of calls around lunchtime and a lot of calls first thing in the morning and then, funnily enough, late in the afternoon. The best thing I can say about it is persevere. Try either the phone or the email and persevere with it. It does actually help if you try to call back at a slightly quieter time, but you might have to expect a bit of a wait. Mark went on to outline the most common problems that lead tenants to contact the union and some simple steps you can take, including using the union's online resources. There's five problems that are the most common problems that we give advice about. 
repairs are still the largest problem by far and the repair process is not difficult you can go onto the website and find information about it it's just a very step-by-step process you follow the steps in my experience at least the repairs will get done if you follow that process properly the second thing we get a lot of callers about is bonds mostly getting your bond back again very simple process if you're having a fight with the landlord just go to vcat and let vcat sort it out don't let them buggerize you around for months on end so not complicated and not difficult to address. There's, again, lots of resources on the website for that. Notices to vacate are a bit trickier. There's a lot of different types of notices. The best bet for most people is try to ring and get some advice about the notice. You might be able to challenge it, but you need to make that decision early on because the notices, particularly the no-fault notices, the 60-day notices, if you need a bit of time to look around to find a place, you don't want to be leaving all your options to the tail end of the process because you could get evicted at very short notice. So the basic advice about that is you get the notice to vacate. By all means, have a look on the website, but it's probably something you would want to get advice about. Lease breaking is another area that we get contact about, and the lease breaking options too are pretty straightforward. Resources on the website to figure out what kind of category you might fit into if it gets difficult you need to get some advice there's a couple of other minor areas rent increases privacy compensation there's lots of resources on the website for those things if you get stuck that's a good point to call us because then you can say i've done done x y and z but i'm not sure about the next step great we can tell you about how to take the next step next mark went into some more detail on two issues that often vex tenants household repairs and rent increases The main issue about repairs is, is it urgent, is it not? It's good to be able to distinguish between urgent repairs. There's a list of things that are the urgent repairs. You can look on the website and see what the list is. And if it's an urgent repair, it's a different process. You contact the landlord if they don't do the repair. You just go straight to VCAT. That's the simplest thing to do. With the other repairs, it's a bit more of a fill out the form, lodge the form, wait 14 days, go to consumer affairs, a bit more. There's a few more steps involved in that one. But again, if you follow those steps, in my experience, 99% of repairs will get sorted out. I think there's a misconception out there in the community that there's legislated caps for rent increases, whereas my understanding there isn't. Yeah. So, for example, a landlord theoretically could increase your rent tenfold in one go, and if you don't fight it, then that's what new rent's going to be. Yeah, that's absolutely correct, Duncan. That is a common misconception, that there is a sort of like a CPI ceiling or something like that. There isn't. There is a protection that says that the end rent can't be excessive, but you need to get an assessment from Consumer Affairs to demonstrate whether it's excessive. Now, sometimes they succeed, but sometimes they don't. If you are having landlord problems, a great first step is to go to tuv.org.au where there are step-by-step guides on how to proceed and downloadable forms if you need them. If you need more advice, the helpline is available from 9am to 4pm weekdays on 9416 2577. Expect a wait of around 30 minutes. An email address is also available at admin at tuv.org.au but as Mark pointed out they can only deal with eight emails per day. Consumer Affairs Victoria can also be reached for advice on 1800 558181. As of this year Consumer Affairs Victoria no longer has a shopfront service. 
Good luck and stand strong. We thank Mr O'Brien for his time and insights. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.